Peace, peace, and welcome. We're glad you're here. This is The Cook on Monday Morning Podcast, and I'm here with my homegirl, Tyra Fennell. Yeah. Welcome. We're here. <laughs> welcome. How you doing? I'm doing well. It's day after Christmas, so I'm kind of like a little sleepy still, but I'm uh-huh, good. Uh-huh. Yeah, we've. Um, I was trying to figure out the other day like how we actually met, because um, I know you've been in the city for how long now? How long I you know been? how we met. Okay, what happened? <laughs> okay, so we met because we were both new le- new leaders council. First of all, so we were in the same community of young emerging leadership, and then the convention in Sacramento was happening, mm-hmm. and Kate Mader suggested you carpool with me mm-hmm. to Sacramento. Okay, so we kind of I think knew of each other through new leaders council, but then we did that road trip. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's when we first had a conversation. But I think I met you at a. Super Bowl party in the Fillmore. Oh, the Super Bowl party yeah, was yeah. scandalous. <laughs> we can't talk about the Super Bowl party on camera. That's too scandalous. But yeah. it was it was good. It was it was interesting. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> well, in the short time you've been here, you made like an immediate impression, and I was thinking about um, just how how great you are at making an impression, and um, you know, everyone that you're so charming, everyone that meets you, I think really likes you. Do they? I mean, my family does. I was yeah, talking, your family's great. My family, you know, every Christmas they're like, "Where is Tyra?" His family's you? a selling point, ladies. <laughs> um, tell tell us a little bit about where you grew up. Yeah, so I am not a native San Franciscan. I am from Washington D.C. I'm very proud to be from Washington D.C. And I grew up uh, part of the time on Capitol Hill, and then part of the time in an area called Columbia Heights. And I grew up in Washington, D.C. when it was still really Chocolate City. Mm-hmm. And I also grew up in Washington, D.C. at the height of the crack ep- epidemic. So um, both of those things had a huge impact on how I see life and how I move through life. Mm-hmm. Were you uh, growing up in D.C. when Mary and Barry was mayor? Definitely. Mary and Barry, I know for people that aren't from D.C., he's like our Willie Brown, except for Willie Brown did not smoke crack. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. But he was still like our mayor for life. Because Marion Barry essentially created the black middle class in D.C., which many people outside of D.C. or who are not black don't really appreciate that. But he basically gave a lot of black people their jobs in government, which helped elevate them economically. So a lot of um, my parents, or not my parents, my dad, my sister, even myself, because he created the Summer Youth Employment Program. So because of that program, I got to do uh, arts performances every summer and get paid for it. Mm-hmm. So he really elevated the black um, socioeconomic strata in in DC. Yeah, yeah, the arts too. Uh, the, the the impression you made on San Francisco is definitely in the space of the arts and in, in politics. And I was wondering about a little bit about your political roots. So I know Mary and Barry must have made an impression on you. Mm-hmm. What was your what, what were your parents like? What are your what was yeah. your upbringing like? So my parents have a very old school story because they grew up together. They met when they were like five, mm. and they lived around a corner from each other. And it was a whole like story of my mom always loved my dad. My dad didn't like my mom until he got drafted to the Vietnam War, and she went to college in Alabama. And then they she would write him letters, and she said slowly his letters turned to love letters. And she was and she had always liked him, so she was shocked. And then when they both got back to D.C., they just got married. So it was like one of those, like 21. Mm. So very old school story. They were married for 47 years before he passed away. And so I grew up around the corner from both sets of grandparents. I never had babysitters. I never had, uh, I never had boxed 
food for dinner. I always had homemade meals. So very um, traditional family nucleus. Okay. Okay. And and who would you say you take more after your mom or your dad or or neither or what? Um, my fashion sense, my dad. Okay. Um, definitely. <laughs> and uh, my mom probably majority except for the crazy part. Mm-hmm. Um, that I hope I I kind of do have a little of that, but oh, okay. <laughs> she's extremely smart. She's extremely political, though she will not say that. She says she hates politics. Mm-hmm. But she grew up. She worked in the Office of Civil Rights and Department of Education with Clarence Thomas when he was. Um, and so she got to work with him um, during her time at Civil Rights. Mm-hmm. And um, let's put it this way. She didn't feel Anita Hill was lying. <laughs> so, um, And then she moved <laughs> on to work in policy. Obviously, she had to implement No Child Left Behind, which she had a lot of issues with. But she worked on national education policy. And through her work and, you know, her doing events at the press club and things like that kind of got me introduced to the world of politics in a roundabout way, um, though she would never call herself a politician ever. She's not into it. Yeah. Yeah. And you went to Howard. I went to Howard. I'm actually a legacy student because I'm third generation Howard University. Oh, um, And I went to grad school. So it's a very different experience than undergrad, but I definitely have like HU under my belt. Okay. What was, talk a little bit about what Howard was like, you know, I mean, it sounds like you always knew you were going to go or is that the case or not? Yeah, well, um, I'm from DC, so I had the Chocolate City experience. So my, my advice to any young person is if you grow up in a predominantly black environment, you don't really need the HBCU experience in undergrad. It's probably good you get the opposite experience just to be, um, just have a diverse experience. But if you're a, a black kid that grew up in Iowa or predominantly white areas, then I think an HBCU is amazing because it does really instill self-esteem and affirmation. Like it's an amazing experience. And I feel like at some point, either undergrad or grad, every black child should experience an HBCU. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't care if it's like a semester at the school or whatever, but mm-hmm. um, yeah. How, how does the school accomplish that or how would you say they yeah. go about doing that? Or I think if the- you're not from a concentrated area of with black excellence, like I'll give you an example, San Francisco. Mm-hmm. San Francisco, not of yesteryear, because I think it was a bit better, you know, probably when you were growing up, right? Right. But now when I moved here like 10 years ago, I'm from, you. I've always lived in cities with progressive black populations. I've lived in London. I lived in New York, D.C., large black populations of all types of black people, rich, poor, professors, drug addicts, you name it. Mm-hmm. Here, when I moved to San Francisco, I lived in a Coal Valley mm-hmm. and I would go to work every day downtown and I would just see homeless people or very under, under uh, the underclass. Mm-hmm. And it caused me to become depressed without me even being aware of what was going on until maybe seven months later. And I was like, where are all the black middle-class people? And um, they're certainly here. They're just not concentrated. So what an HBCU does essentially for someone that comes from an experience like that is it concentrates all this black excellence in one body where you're walking around every day seeing these amazing thinkers, artists, just people, and you're you're absorbing that. So that's what an HBCU does essentially. Yeah. Yeah, And I think you're referring to to the news report that came out sometime within the last few months about 40% of the black home... 40% 40% of the homeless population in the city is African-American. Right. And so a large percentage of who you see um, who have housing insecurity or suffering on the streets are African-American. Right. And I'll, I'll since we're going to lead into San Francisco politics, I'll just give you this, this thought of mine. I, I feel like it's affected, um, it affects the way people 
treat Black people and perceive Black people, even Black people. So example, I have a, I've considered myself probably in the bourgeoisie class of Black life. Um, but but you, you, you intermingle with I intermingle. So I'm not else. Marxist in the sense where I only deal with the middle class. Uh-huh. So that's true. But that's how I'm perceived. Mm. And I feel like just think talking about Black people, I feel like Black people a lot of times in this city are more are more um, okay with digesting the narrative of a Black person coming from poverty, the projects coming out of that, than a Black person that steps into their power from a position of privilege. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that is some of the ways subconsciously only seeing Black poverty affects our mentality. The way it affects other ethnicities in the city is when they meet you, they just assume you come from poverty. And that's not good either because they're always moving at you from like you're you're moving in a deficit. Right. So HBCUs essentially um, sort of help reverse that in a young person's uh, ether. Like the young person goes there and starts realizing, wait a minute, all that I am is not the projects or poverty or subsidized housing. I'm also this and that and this and that. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's it's embraced. It's normalized. It's it's expected. You build a community of people that uh, want to push you toward excellence. And I, it was interesting because on the first podcast, my, my first guest was from Jamaica, mm-hmm. and I talked about a lot of what you were mentioning when it came to this deficit mindset and how I didn't see that in Jamaica because <laughs> right. there was like everybody owned every aspect of, you know, you walk into the bank, it's all run by Black people. Right. You walk into Chinese food restaurants and it's all black people working there. Right. You know, it's just like the whole it's country. It's very different. Yeah, it's like you don't have to be relegated to a particular type of career. Um, you meet people that have a lot of different professions who look like you. Right. And it sounds like the HBCU experience also offers that totally. to people. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, but you have really, you know, we mentioned the arts and um, talk a little bit about your career in the arts, what it, how it started, what it looks like now. Mm-hmm. So my father was, this is nothing against my father. So he's a very urbane guy for a black man brought up in the 60s and 70s, he was kind of atypical. He's very much into alternative jazz, like fusion, John Zorn, Coltrane, Ohm, you know, 70s Coltrane, 70s, 80s Miles Davis, Um, just into very avant-garde music, abstract art. So growing up, he would take me to concerts, little holes in the walls where it would just be like music was like chaos. I didn't know what was going on. Mm. He would, uh, you know, those Carlos Rossi bottles of wine, those like gallon (laughs) jugs of wine. You get, you'll see them. Oh, Ross. Okay. Okay. Yeah. 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 So he would, his favorite thing to do was to take a bottle of that wine in the basement Uh and just Uh listening to like, I mean, it was jazz, but it was fusion. So it was like really chaotic Mm -hmm. and he just liked doing that. So um, he took me to the Kennedy center to see a chrono string quartet. And Kronos is neoclassical, so they play like Hendrix and things like that. And that really, I was like six, I think. And that impacted me forever. That was like, and the cellist was a woman. And so the next week or so, I went to the DC Youth Orchestra and I registered to play cello. So that's how I started in music, playing cello um, with the DC Youth Orchestra. I actually didn't know that you played an instrument. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then when I got to the ninth grade, I was going, I applied for Duke Ellington School of the Arts, which is an arts magnet school in DC. And it was either continue playing cello or do something else. And I didn't feel like I was going to be a classical musician. I just, Mm -hmm. you know, so I applied for Duke Ellington as a literary arts major, which essentially means I wanted to be some sort of writer, movie producer or something like that in the media arts. Um, but my first year in, I used to sing with these girls. 
and we called ourselves Shades of Ebony. It's really bad. Oh, wow. But um, we would like do a- like club gigs. We would do backup singing. Mm. And one day I was singing in the hallway and the choir director said, oh, I didn't know you could sing, Tyra. Why aren't you in the music department? And I was like, I'm in the media department. So they somehow spliced a major, a double major together. This is high school? This is high school. Okay. So I would do media arts, writing, and then I would do singing. And we would go on tours and everything. Mm. Um, and I was in Dreamgirls. That was like the biggest, mm. biggest thing I did in music in high school because I was Dina, which is a star, Dreamgirls. And, um, and that kind of how my career continued. I moved to England. I was a songwriter. Mm. So that kind of morphed into being a song, professional songwriter and singer. So sometimes I'd write the songs. Sometimes I'd perform the songs. And I actually got to perform at some pretty major events in England. Um, and that was pretty much my 20s. Mm. So, yeah, that, that's my foundation. And my foundation in the arts is music. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know that you can sing until you start singing at our oh, Christmas party. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. At Christmas Everyone, party. We was doing like a singing competition between yeah. the guys and the girls. And Tyra organized all the women <laughs> in my family to be her backup singers. Yeah. <laughs> And then she starts singing, and it's like angelic. Yeah. Like you have a really beautiful voice. Yeah, thank you. We yeah. had like dance moves, and there it was good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was that coordinated dance moves. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I didn't know that you um, you were touring with a musical. That's yeah. Dope. That was uh, that was in my twelfth grade year of high school. But it was an upset because that role is really, if you know Dream Girls, it's a very difficult musical to sing. Mm-hmm. And Dina is supposed to be Diana Ross, so she's mm-hmm. the lead. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a big deal. And that actually gave me the confidence to apply to music school for college. Yeah. Because um, I still didn't see myself as a singer. And mm-hmm. I really never did. That's why I morphed into more production, which I do now. Right. Because I, I could sing, but I was more uh, of a business person and I was more of just a hard worker. Mm-hmm. So I knew I was never going to be like Beyonce. Mm-hmm. Okay. Like she has it. And there are people out there that have it and all they want to do is art, right? right. I wasn't that person. Mm-hmm. So I took some life inventory mm-hmm. um, at 28 and I was like, okay, no, you got to you gotta figure out how to remove all this stuff around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's how I got to know you really was as a person that was enterprising, that got, that made yeah. things happen, that pulled people together and that, you know, manifested ideas, which, uh, which, I, which I truly appreciate about you. Um, so I saw that. You doing that at different iterations, and then it happened in a in a large way through Bayview Live. Yeah, and so talk a little bit about Bayview Live, what that is. And- yeah, so basically, when I moved to San Francisco, I got a job at the Arts Commission, and um, the Arts Commission's job is to do things citywide around arts policy, um, regranting, grant making, and that's largely their role. Um, so. I was kind of out of place in that position. I'm not a slow mover. I move very fast. I move at a private sector pace. And the Arts Commission is government, which is, can be slow. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was introduced to the Bayview through my work at the Arts Commission and realized that the resources they were given by the city for arts production and arts vitalization was too small for the overwhelming um, perception people had of Bayview, meaning Bayview has had a bit of a history of violence in the community, of all sorts of things for a number of reasons. So people in the neighborhood are still a little nervous to come to the commercial corridor, let alone people outside the neighborhood. And what that causes is a huge economic deficit. People don't want to patronize the businesses or the restaurants. So there's a lot of attrition. And so you need a flow of foot traffic for the businesses to thrive. Um, and a $5,000 event is not going to work. That's not going to bring people out. And so I decided to actually, after producing, um, 
Third on Third at the Arts Commission, where I had to really bootstrap. I forgot about Third on Third, yeah. One, I didn't like that it that dope. because I, I created that within the city. The city owned the concept. Yeah. So that, what, I didn't What's Third like. on Third? What was Third on Third? Third on Third, the initial concept was supposed to happen every third Thursday of the month. And I honestly, I was so impressed by First Fridays in Oakland that I modeled it after that. Mm-hmm. So the third Thursday of every month, something was supposed to happen in the Bayview throughout the corridor and every merchant site, they'd have art. And then on Mendel Plaza, they'd have the crux of the activation. Maybe mm-hmm. Los Rockas performed one time I was there and um, so forth and so on. So one, the, the city owned the idea. Two, because I work for the city, they didn't want me to produce it. So they actually granted the money to the opera house to do it. And The Bayview Opera House? Yeah. And Barbara from the opera house is amazing, but it wasn't me. And that's not, it wasn't my vision. So that really upset me. And that's what made me start thinking about moving out of that and starting my own organization so I can really be more nimble. And I knew Bayview needed to be a black cultural district. And I knew they needed a major festival. They're the only neighborhood in the city that doesn't have its own major festival. And that's where Bayview Live was created. Mm. Yeah. So what's Bayview Live? So Bayview Live is the only festival in San Francisco solely dedicated to urban music, which is a euphemism for black music. Mm-hmm. But black music is all music, so mm-hmm. we can get into that later. But yeah, yeah. Um, essentially, <laughs> it's a platform for the neighborhood artists to perform, as well as culturally relevant artists from around the country around the, that are internationally known to come and perform in the Bayview. Right. Um, and so that's essentially what Bayview Live is. Yeah, yeah. I was. We were talking a lot around the first Bayview Live, and the headliner was uh, Jadena. Jadena. Before he was really, I mean, he had Classic Man out, right? Right. But I could still get him on the cheap because it was before his first full (laughs) album came out. But he he had made. See, artists are like the stock market. You got to get them right before they hit Uh or the album hit. So we got him at a good spot. Uh And you at the time, thank God, I, I just needed partners. And Mission Bit came in and was a partner. Uh And nobody really believed in Bayview Live and Imprint City. Supervisor Cohen did. Mm -hmm. And um, I I mean, she believes in me in every, like third on third, she funded Mm -hmm. Bayview Live. So she's always been a believer. Yeah. Yeah. Supervisor Malia Cohen was a former supervisor of District 10. She's now the board of equalization. Right. Chair. Chair. Yeah. 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 For State of California. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, I think, I mean, for me, at least observing you, it's kind of hard not to bet on you. Which was oh, why I wanted you. to be a part of Bayview Live. Yeah. And then you got this, you know, there's this thing that happens too where if you get a recording artist to do something, it validates the event in a different way. It's like the way I, the analogy I give, which I'm sure a lot of progressive San Franciscans hate this analogy, but it's like certain artists are like the target or the Starbucks of the art world. Meaning if they're performing in that neighborhood, people tend to feel safe in that neighborhood. Mm-hmm. So, Jadena or Talib Kweli, it's like if they perform in the neighborhood, it must be okay. And then people come out and realize it is okay, and then they come back. Right. And if your product is good, they'll come back. Right. So that was my idea. And also these artists, these headliners, are the Trojan horses for our neighborhood artists. Um, unfortunately, if you're trying to attract thousands of people, maybe the neighborhood rapper who's very talented can't draw that number. But Busta Rhymes can. Mm-hmm. And then what you do is you have the artist in the neighborhood and locally go on before him. Right. So that's yeah. kind of the concept. Yeah. So you leverage the national recording artists to put on the local artists and right. you give them all the space to shine. Right. Which is which is which I think is like the true billions of like your leadership. And I think it's always been about, you know, how do you make multiple pieces work and then always put on the community. Right. In a very real way. Especially yeah. around the arts. But not not even just the arts, but 
oh, the local vendors can come on. Right. Like everyone is benefit. Everyone can eat. Right. Tyra's exactly. And the, show. The, the youth are helping out during the event. They're being paid to like work the event. They're being paid. We're um, creating a mural art area mm-hmm. um, where the festival lives and the youth help the artists paint the mural. So mm-hmm. everyone does get paid. And I think what a lot of people don't understand is it is expensive and sometimes I don't get paid. So mm-hmm. we're still growing Baby Live. My hope is that the future, it'll just be like this huge thing in the neighborhood that supports the local economy. Um, so I'm willing to take an L for the first few years, but mm-hmm. that's that's how business works anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Baby Live is a is, is a signature event of Imprint City, which is the organization right. that you founded. Right. And um, we can get into a ton of stories about what it's like to start a nonprofit or like build a nonprofit because I went through that too. But I don't want to... I want to keep going on the other people that have participated in as a headliner. So you had Jadena the first year. Jadena was the first year. He was excellent. And I was kind of new at doing it. So he was like really the only big act. I had Equipto Mm -hmm. um, perform, who was like opener for Jadena. He's a local artist. He's a local artist. Um, And then the next year we had Talib Kweli, Mm -hmm. who I'm an OG. So Mm -hmm. I love Talib. I know the history. And he attracted a lot of OGs. But the young people didn't know who he was. Mm -hmm. So I got Neff the Pharaoh um, to open. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. From Vallejo. Yeah. Yeah, And then the next year we wanted to really pay an homage to female artists. So the entire stage was were female artists. Okay. And that's when Kamaya headlined and Rayana J okay. um, had uh, performed and amongst others. So mm-hmm. Vicious is a local artist in Bayview, rapper. She performed, so forth yeah, and so on. Yeah, we went to high school together. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. And then, <laughs> and then uh, last year's our fourth annual, that was Busta Rhymes uh-huh. and Prezi, who's from Hunters Point, uh-huh. open for Busta Rhymes, as well as Stunna Man, who's the last black man in San Francisco, okay. as well as Jamal True Love performed. Um, and then we had an after party. So this is the first year we had an after party. Mm-hmm. And it was, we had uh, all sorts of people, uh, local artists performed. It was cracking. Okay. So where, where, where was the after party? That was at Laughing Monk Brewing. So when it uh, starts right, getting right, cold, right, right, right. everyone could move inside. Yeah. You know? Yeah. What, and what street is Baby Live on again? Uh, Baby Live is on Egbert Avenue between 3rd and Jennings. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, I thought, of, I, I know about Buster Ryan's, pre, you know, reputation about being an incredible performer. Oh. Buster. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. But you know, when Talib came, you know, I always want you to win, but I'm not really a big Talib fan. Yeah. I think that like his voice is kind of annoying. Oh, so, Talib. Yeah. He, can I tell you something? Okay, so Buster Arms, so let's talk about the juxtaposition between okay. artists. Talib Kweli was such a nice man. Okay. Um, and ta- they're all talented, such a nice man. Buster Rhymes is the first time I worked with a superstar, mm-hmm. like with all that comes with that. Mm-hmm. And so he was a little more to handle, but when he got on that, when he got out of his car, we finally got him out the car. <laughs> okay. Oh, it's a story. And, well, the thing is, people were like, people have no idea what goes on when you're producing stuff. Mm-hmm. I was dealing with so much chaos that day and people were coming up to me and I was like, I don't have no time. I'm trying to make sure Buster Rhymes has his food right. He wants Jamaican food. Shout out to Kingston 11 for catering because uh, okay. I was like, we get Jamaican food in San Francisco. Um, mm. and so he had his food right. Then he, then we had the we had him perform for forty five minutes, and he's I'm only performing for thirty minutes. So he wouldn't come into the venue until I went on Instagram and changed it. The problem is my graphic designer. It was a Saturday, so he wasn't around. So I did literally do it on PowerPoint. It was ridiculous. But finally, he gets out the car, and the crowd went wild. He was excellent. Mm. He he was worth. It was like giving birth. 
Mm-hmm. Like it was so much pain. And then when you get the baby, you're like, mm-hmm. yes. Yeah. So mm-hmm. it was, he was excellent. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we have, is they're never going to, the neighborhood's never going to forget that. Mm-hmm. And it was the first time he performed in Bay, the Bay Area in like 20 years. Wow. You bought Buster Rhymes yeah. for the baby. Yeah. 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 There was like that song you had with Janet Jackson when I was in high school. <laughs> And it had the little water music video. <laughs> yeah. He's an OG too. So that's uh-huh. why we got Prezi. Because Prezi okay. is the younger artist and uh-huh. he's from the neighborhood. So that was really nice. Yeah. Do you do you know who's performing in the coming year? You got somebody No. See, the issue with Baby Live right now is that I'm always chasing the train. So right now I have to raise money. And then by the time I get the money, sometimes it's late in the tour season. So I'm kind of left kind of pulling from, you know, scraps, so to speak. Okay. So I'm hoping to raise the money a little earlier so I have more variety of who I should get. But this year we're trying to go for more of a Black Future um, theme, I think, which is more like Duckworth, um, you know, kind of Anderson Pack, or just a little more Afropunk. Okay. So that's the theme we're kind of thinking this year. Um, we also were thinking of doing a Baby Bounce edition with like Big Frida okay. and that whole energy. So we're, nice. we're grappling with like what theme we're going to do this year. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a good time for um, events focused on the Black community. Like what you do in Bayview is great. I went this year. I went to the what is it, Afrotech. Yes. I checked that out and uh it was a lot of people from you know, I didn't really go to the any of the workshops. Right. I was just kind of looking party. at the scene. Yeah, I was just <laughs> I was just kind of watching people yeah. and um there's there's more and more things like that popping up and uh so I hope that it continues to build traction. I'm sure it will with with you at the helm. Yeah. Um so hopefully is there like a newsletter people can sign up for to hear Yeah. About the- so if you go to imprintcity.org, you can sign up for our newsletter and we 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 put out quality, so we won't be loading with a lot of crap, but it mm-hmm. keeps you in the loop on all the events. We do about uh ten to twelve events a year. Okay. So it keeps you in the loop on on the events that we're doing and the artists that we're trying to put on. Because mm-hmm. we have a lot of great artists in the Bayview. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you're also running for office right now. I'm running for the DCCC, the Democratic County Central Committee. And people are like, why are you running for office? Well, first of all, because well, first, I, I, like, what yeah, is what not? is what is the DCCC? DCCC <laughs> basically is an ex, is a tentacle of the Democratic Party in California and essentially National Democratic Party. So the way it's structured is every jurisdiction has a body called the DCCC that feeds into the larger structure of the California um, California Democratic Party. And our job is to register voters, to endorse candidates. Um, and to help strengthen the party platform through different things, mm-hmm. through resolutions. Okay. Yeah, and you make endorsements on local on races. local candidates. Yeah. yeah, and also we do influence. Like we go to the conventions and we can vote mm-hmm. on like presidential nominees and mm-hmm. legislation on a larger scale. So that's yeah. just some of the highlights. Yeah, yeah. As a as a person that ran for board of education twice, like the first year, I didn't get the DCCC endorsement. I lost by like less than one percent of the vote. Mm. The second year, I did get the DCCC endorsement, and I was the third place vote getter. I, I won the race, but the gap between me and everybody else was like fifty thousand votes. So they have an impact. They had an impact. Uh, yeah, they have they have a huge bit impact on what they consider low ballot races. Right. So last year was kind of odd because for the school board race, uh, two of the two people. Uh, got the DCCC and one one that didn't get it it was it was like very very abnormal right. like uh, Gabriela Lopez didn't get the DCCC but she ended up coming second place as a vote getter which is very unusual right but people don't really I think a lot of San Francisco residents don't um, they don't really know who's on the DCCC they, they see 
endorsed by the Democratic Party, right. and they'll follow that slate because, like, oh, right. I'm a Democrat, I'm gonna take that into the um, into the ballot. But there's some there there's been some things that you that you've brought up around the way that the race is going and who's running yeah. that I wanted you to speak to if you. Yeah. So I know politics is always like, you know, you have them and they like us and them. And in San Francisco is no different. The funny thing about San Francisco from a Washingtonian perspective is that they're kind of similar. <laughs> so, but they figured out a way to divide themselves into what they call progressives and moderates. So right now there are a lot of elected supervisors that are running for the DCCC on what is called the progressive quote unquote side. And that's problematic to me because the DCCC essentially should be a body of emerging thinkers, uh, grassroots activists to create a check and balance from the long arm of City Hall. So you don't want elected supervisors on the DCCC to endorse their, their friends, endorse themselves for office. And also you can raise money through the DCCC to fund other races. So you could essentially use it as a slush fund if you're a sitting elected official. So I'm all for if you're formally elected or if you're a grassroots activist specifically running for the DCCC, it helps cultivate new leadership and new thinkers. But if you're sitting in elected office and you have the job of a supervisor, which right now they need to focus totally on that because the city kind of <laughs> has some big issues, then you should do that job and allow the DCCC to be a mechanism for the next generation, so to speak. Right. Yeah, let's get into a few of the San Francisco issues. Oh, okay. And... uh and I do want to talk about this thing around, um, I want to talk about the stuff about politics. Before I get into that, what do you consider the most pressing issues facing the city? Affordable housing. Okay. The affordable housing to me has impacted the homeless population. We've, I think the homeless population is at 17% and has increased significantly over two years. Um, the housing crisis starting in 2008 in terms of black life has significantly caused a transference of wealth in the black community which feeds into the homeless population. For the larger uh, San Francisco, not being able to afford a place to live, a lot of people have um, decided to live in their cars, live in their RVs. So affordable housing really spills into a lot of different areas. So mm -hmm. I would say that's probably the most pre pressing issue. Mm -hmm. And and what, how would you evaluate the city's um, ability right now to solve that problem? Well, it's not really that great only because the laws and the legislation that's in place currently causes a lot of um, it's just, it, housing can only be built at a snail's pace. There's a lot of red tape that uh, discourages not big developers. I mean, people think of development, they think far city or, you know, five point. They don't think of mid range and mom and pop developers. And our legislation and our nimbyism is largely affecting the smaller developers' ability to come in and support housing in San Francisco. Um, and so I think uh, that's an issue. All the red tape costs a lot of money. It also prevents people that have vacant, um, they have a vacancy tax coming down the pipeline. Um, as someone that supports small business owners, um, I think the vacancy tax is good in its spirit. But I think that before you can impose a penalty to people that may not have the ability to pay for a remediation of their space because it's so expensive, you need to streamline the permitting process and how much it costs to actually get your space remediated. Yeah, yeah. I definitely agree with the point about um, the, our policies affecting the small and mid-range developers or people right. who really want to do business with the city or do business, not with the city, but in the city. Um, it takes about a year to get through permitting for any sort of like housing right. change. If you want to, you know, add a floor or remodel a kitchen exactly. or, 
And so if you if you're the bigger developer, like you say, you have really long money to wait out that yes. process. Thirty years is how much it takes to really see a return on investment for a development. Okay. So if you're far a city and you develop Times Square, you have that bandwidth. Right. 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 But if you may be uh, up and coming or starting right black developer looking to do business in the city and you don't have that type of backing or exactly. capital. You know, we we've been trying to do it at the school district, uh, build we have a goal now. We're trying to create a policy around building 550 units, which I think should be more, but looking at district property as uh, a place to build housing for educators. Right. And as we look through who can do that in the most effective way, there's been a, there's been a lot of conversations about bringing in nonprofit developers to do the work, but the, the big constraint is that they need city money right. in order to finance the projects. And the city is really constrained because our county, the the school district is a separate jurisdiction from the city and county of San Francisco. Right. And the city has a bunch of housing demands. And so us waiting on the city to give us money for our jurisdiction is right. like, it really- I mean, if I was having an issue with the Arts Commission, that's a microcosm of like this bigger issue. I mean, mm -hmm. if I was dealing with the snail's pace of the small little Arts Commission, right. imagine dealing with the mammoth of um, changing housing policy that can make building more efficient, which is what the mayor is going up against right now, figuring out how to- manage the market rate side of housing, which essentially funds the below market rate side of housing, and then also make it and include a broad range of people that need housing, middle income, low income, so forth and so on. Right. Yeah. And and the uh, the debate around housing, it really is interesting because like my grandmother, right, um, We the home that she lives in, her father bought in 1947 and they, and they bought it for like $6,000. Why did you have to tell me that? That's, that's <laughs> yeah. every time I hear those figures. Right. Well, they bought that house and the house behind it. Mm. And, you know, it's in Hayes Valley, which is one of the most expensive, right. which is where we are now, one of the most expensive places in the city to live. And at that time, it was redlined. So, you know, in order to, it was redlined by the federal government. So banks weren't lending to people that lived in their neighborhood right. because it was considered a blighted neighborhood because they had black residents there. So gentrification, I mean, it's been a, a big story in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. But if you talk to her, like she is a, you know, not in my backyard person. And it's primarily because the density of the city and the changing diversity of the city mm -hmm. is, is really, she's one of these people. It's, I think it's like a lot of long-term residents that seeing the city change, they yeah. want to put constraints on the amount of building. But when that happens, you know, I mean, everyone as a result, if they live in the right area, their property value goes up. But it puts a lot more, um, it makes it a lot harder to build in San Francisco. Right, right. And so it's harder for people who to actually have affordable housing because we don't have more housing in general. So, right. you know, the demand well, we is really low. Well, we also need the west side to step up a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, the southeast side of the city, which includes Hayes Valley, District 5, um, has taken the lion's share of development. And so it's creating a lopsided city. Mm -hmm. That includes navigation centers and transitional housing. Um, we know there's a lot of wealth on the West Side. We know there's a lot of single family homes on the West Side, which makes it difficult. And there's not political will because those wealthy people give to campaigns. Mm -hmm. um, but we do need to start looking holistically, not only at the city and getting the West Side to do their fair share, but also regionally. Regional housing and a regional housing plan and liaising with San Jose and Oakland is very critical. And also that leads to the transportation issue. Because if you're going to have people moving out further, whether it's the West Side or Oakland, 
The transportation needs to be seamless and it needs to be connected. So your fare from BART should roll to your fare to Caltrain, should roll to your fare to Muni. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Spurs working on all that stuff, um, at least the, the the plan for it. So Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, the the people that live on the west side, I mean, maybe their their neighborhood is very different from Hayes Valley. They didn't they didn't go through the same gentrification that my grandmother saw. Right. But their reasons around being cautious about housing, um, I think, are similar. Yeah. And there's also been a big push to only make it affordable, which I think there's a lot of merit merit to. But it ends up also pricing out a lot of middle class families, which you've really lost in San Francisco. Totally lost. Like I think again, like. I lived in England, which is quasi-social. It's not a socialist. It's not a socialist country. It's quasi. So that means that um, my friend whose parents were doctors, he lived in their brownstone. And next to him was a teacher. And on the other side of him was a single mother on Section 8 or, uh, you know, in equivalent to Section 8 in England. Mm-hmm. So the neighborhoods in England, because of the structure, are very economically mixed. And we need to encourage integration and economically mixed housing in San Francisco as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but the middle class definitely needs to be... Uh, paid attention to because those are all of our teachers, all of our first responders and people like that. So. Right, right. Yeah. Let's get back to black people. Yeah. Let's get back to black <laughs> people, man. I yeah. don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Because um, you can't think, unring a bell. Right. I think the city, I mean, what what do you think about the idea of the, of the city having a black agenda? I think that's a lot of uh, political theater. Okay. Um, and, um, and I'm very aware of political theater. A lot mm-hmm. of stuff going on right now is political theater. And to people, most people don't pay attention to politics. I right, do. Right. So the Black Agenda is something Gavin Newsom first, or from my from my understanding, he put together a, a whole committee to put this, this Black Agenda forward, and they codified it in this like booklet, and it's really comp- it's really good actually. Mm-hmm. And then he left office. I mean, he moved on to another office, and there was no funding for implementation. So I know now they have a new racial equity department um, Mm -hmm. at the Human Rights Commission. So let's hope they get the funding to actually implement something that's already created. I don't want any more committees on black life. Um, The fact of the matter is we're also under 4% right now. Mm -hmm. And that means that we don't have political uh, might Mm -hmm. and we don't have political money Mm -hmm. to really get uh, the city to pay attention to us in a real way. So we definitely need coalition building. Mm -hmm. I know people hear that word, but... And the, to me, the mission and the brown community is a great coalition to have with the black community to help us have a little more weight. Right. But I, I'm interested to see what this new department is going to do, mm-hmm. see if they're getting get funding to implement some of these great ideas. Mm-hmm. And regrowing the black population is going to be a challenge because you have to ask yourself, if I'm a black person in the middle class, why would I want to live in San Francisco? There's no socialization here. Um, there's no other, uh, there's no amenities um, if you have a family, you're going to home. Can you help them get a home? You know, right? So, so it's a very complicated issue at this point at four percent. Yeah, yeah. Or you're trying to move into you know five hundred square foot condo for seven hundred thousand dollars. Exactly. Like no, let me tell you. Culturally, black people have kids and we have families, and it's mm-hmm. a cultural thing. It's very similar to Latino culture. We need space for that. Mm-hmm. And so, having these micro units, which is a big thing now, which I think is needed, but I mean. Most people are going to outgrow that in no time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So then there's, there's this thing about, there's a lot of maybe pomp and circumstance about the idea of a black agenda, but there are, there are actual um, changes to process on how to do business in a city that could help people that are black. Right. Like yeah. what, what, what would it be? What would it look like if it were like real? Like what's a tangible 
I think, um, you know, I know the PUC is going to have 50% of its workforce retiring from the wastewater treatment plant in the Bayview. Mm -hmm. I don't know how many years, but quick. It's Mm -hmm. soon. And so they need a lot of workforce development to train, to get people ready. And so I know Harlan Kelly is doing a lot to recruit um, black talent. And I think that's a great start. I think that's a great model. Mm -hmm. Um, But then once you recruit the black talent to the city... What's going to keep them here? What's going to keep them from working in the city and living in Dublin or Antioch or where Oakland? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's housing. That's quality of life. You know, that's schools. Mm-hmm. That's a place to go. So your kid is not the only black kid in the classroom being like ostracized or having to deal with that. So right. the, in addition to workforce development opportunities, the city has to really pay attention to um you know, other amenities that will support black life. And I know people say, um, uh, I forgot the saying, but basically like what helps black people helps all people. Mm-hmm. So if you can figure that out for black people in the middle class, it's going to really be a paradigm for all the middle class. Yeah. But yeah. we're talking about black folk first. Yeah. We're talking, yeah, actually, yeah, yeah <laughs> Very yeah, intentional. We, we, yeah. We on the topic. Um, so I want to, I want to talk to you about leadership because you are one of our, I think a celebrated leaders just as a San Franciscan. Not just a black leader, but a leader just in the city. A black, a black female leader, which is important. Um, how do you think about leadership? Like, what is your leadership approach? Um, I'm very big on. Um, before I decided to run for office, because even years ago, people asked me what I run for office, but I didn't feel I had a body of work. Um, I feel like a lot of people run for office and they are social media warriors. They mm-hmm. complain a lot on Facebook and mm-hmm. they say all the right things, but really. They've not shown any ability to produce, to organize, to show outcome of anything. Mm -hmm. So why would I trust them to run my city or run my neighborhood? Mm -hmm. So my biggest thing initially, if I thinking if I were to run in the future, is I want to really show people that I've done the work, that I've built something, that I I can show quantitative measures. Mm -hmm. That is very important to me. Of any leader I support, I want to see that background. also, I want to know that you, uh, I want to know what community you're serving. I want to know where you hang out. Mm-hmm. I want to know like that balance. I don't want to see you just hanging at like galas and dinner parties. I want to see that you're really a grassroots person. Mm-hmm. So those are some of the things I've, I hope to model. Um, and also like I hope to see in my, the leadership I support. Okay. The last thing I wanted to ask you about was legacy. And so, you know, when I, I started a, a consulting firm named after my great grandfather. He's a person I mentioned that bought the house in, on Oak Street. It's called the Luther Harris Holding Company. And this is his dictionary. Oh, yeah. And this is uh, my great grandmother's chairs. And, you know, he had like an eighth grade education. He came to San Francisco. He, he passed with um, like several properties. He built a sawmill in Arkansas all at a time when before black people right. could vote. Uh, legally vote in the country or before the civil rights acts passed, which um, actually made it real for the community. Mm -hmm. How do you think about your legacy? I always said to myself, like I, you know, I'm not from San Francisco, so I don't have family here. So, you know, recession is upon us, things happen. And if for any reason I have to leave San Francisco, I wanted to be a part of making Bayview a black cultural district, which I helped co-author the legislation. And I want Bayview Live to live on and be like basically a mini outside lands mm-hmm. in on the Southeast sector. Um, and if I leave and those two things are thriving, the cultural district and the festivals, I'm happy. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of what I, I mean, that's 
obviously as I grow politically and my my vision of that may become bigger in terms of legacy. Mm-hmm. But I know like that's what I hope to leave um, imprinted on San Francisco. Uh, imprinted. <laughs> <laughs> So how can I learn more about your DCCC campaign? Yeah, so you can go to Tyra Fennell, SF, as in SanFrancisco.com, to learn about my DCCC campaign. Um, also like me on Facebook, Tyra Fennell for DCCC, because um, I I'm, I do a myriad of my policy positions, things I've done. Obviously, I like photos so um, on, on my Facebook page, so that's a little more fun than just my website. But go to my website, TyraFennellSF.com, or Tyra Fennell for DCCC on Facebook, or Tyra Imprint on Instagram. Okay. Thank you, Tyra. Thank you. Yeah, this is fun. <laughs> Yay. So, peace, peace, and thank you for listening to another Cook on Monday Morning podcast. I'd like to thank Tyra Fennell for being our second guest on the show. Um, this has been really fun to do. I look forward to having a range of different types of people talking about all that they do, whether it's in San Francisco. Um, in some other city, interesting topics that I hope will inform and inspire you to have a different approach to how you view your week. We want to change what it means to what you think about a Monday morning. And so um, thank you. This podcast really started with a newsletter that I distribute every morning, every Monday morning called Cook on Monday Morning. You can subscribe to that podcast at stevemoncook.com. Uh, please also feel free to share this podcast or the first one or whichever content on the website uh, or on YouTube that you think is appropriate to the people that you think would benefit from it. You know, I don't, I don't really believe in like the like and subscribe and comment game. I'm not really in there for that. But hopefully if the, t- the content is good. You feel compelled to, you know, share it with people that you think will benefit from it. Now, if you are a person that's interested in creating your own podcast, reach out to me at info at We can help you set up the audio and video for your, sh- your show. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm producing this myself, but I really want to be a resource for others that may not have had the equipment or the technical expertise to create something on their own. So if that's of interest to you, reach out to me at info at If you are interested in working with me through my consulting practice. I started a consulting business. It's a small boutique company. I named it after my great grandfather. It's called the Luther Harris Holding Company. And I focus on strategic advising to help companies meet different business objectives that they have, whether it's around community engagement, strategic growth, brand awareness, etc. So you can also reach out to me regarding that at info at stevemoncook.com. Now, finally, I just want to thank the people that made this podcast possible. I want to thank our videographer, David, for all of his great work. I want to thank uh, Fernando uh, and Cinco Marquez for the editing that he does for the podcast. I want to thank Tyra again, who is our host today or our guest today. Uh, Finally, I want to say a general thank you to all the people who I think make San Francisco the incredible place that it is from our people that teach our students, that uh, drive our buses, that keep our streets safe, our fire service, um, our garbage collectors, you know, everybody that helps the city run. Thank you for the work you do. I am your biggest fan. I want to see you thrive, grow, and I don't think you're appreciated enough. 
So I just wanted to say thank you to all of you that do that work as well. Um, if there are particular guests or topics that you want me to cover, please let me know. Uh, you can obviously view the podcast on YouTube, but it's also on Spotify and wherever else you listen to podcasts. So again, I look forward to taking this journey with you. Thank you for listening and have a great week. Peace, peace. And we out.